I would like to uh, say thank you to Ajahn Kruniko and, and the resident community here at uh, Chittabhi Baker Monastery for the, uh, the generous and uh, very warm, friendly welcome. And it's a, a very real pleasure to be back here. As Ajahn Kruniko was saying, this is where I started my monastic life in this country in 1980. And a lot has happened since then. But to come back here and to just be a guest and uh, not do very much is a treat. And I was commenting to the uh, community at breakfast this morning that it's like uh, being welcomed by family, family that one feels very comfortable with. And and it, it does feel like a... Uh, a privilege to a real privilege to have such companions and um, to be welcomed in the way that one is and to know that such places exist uh, I prior to coming here I had been traveling around for about a week uh, with a friend who is visiting from Australia and uh, stayed at various places and and stopped off here and there and and basically had a closer look at what's going on outside monasteries more than I usually do. And so just to come back and by contrast to come back into a place that has the sense of sanctuary and, and refuge uh, does feel <clears throat> like a real privilege, something very rare. And I, uh, as I get older, I, my, my feeling of sincere appreciation for the huge amount of work that has gone into um, establishing and, and maintaining these places. That, that appreciation definitely grows. And I was reflecting this morning on the, um, the meaning of this word uh, refuge and sanctuary. It's something we hear a lot about in in our Buddhist teachings, the three refuges and going for refuge and those of you that have our Forest Sangha calendar perhaps have already read the verse for this month which, uh, uh, quoting some teachings by Ajahn Chah, he says, Atahi Atano Nato, which is the first line of a very famous stanza given by the Buddha and Ajahn Chah, in this case, uh, translates it as make yourself a refuge unto yourself. Uh, who else or who other could be your refuge? The true refuge is the heart, nothing else. The, uh, of course, those of you who studied little Pali probably wouldn't be inclined to question Ajahn Chah's translation. I think it probably more accurately says you are your own refuge, but... 
Ajahn Chah and his characteristic uh, way of trying to make the teachings relevant and, and helpful, uh, probably worded it that way, by way of encouraging those who are listening to recognize that this is work that we have to do. This, the refuge is something that we work on. Okay, we come across the Buddha's teachings and, and faith is quickened and inspiration uh, comes online and, and we think, yes, this is, this is the direction I want to live my life and, and we'll perhaps move to make a commitment to the refuges, to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, the Sangha. But the great teachers that we have the good fortune to uh, have had with us uh, have encouraged us to consider these refuges. They're not just a belief system. It's not like a lot of other religions where you're taught something, told something, and, and the effort called for is to cling to that belief. Now, this is uh, totally contrary to what the Buddha was intending when he encouraged people to go for refuge to the Buddha as the teacher, to the Dhamma as the teachings, to the Sangha as an example and inspiration, he was not, as I'm sure we're all aware, wanting us just to cling to belief systems about these things. Even the objects, like the Buddha image, is an object that as much as we might value it and we bow to it, if somebody came and stole it, it's not the end of the world. If some fanatical fundamentalists in Afghanistan blow up ancient Buddha images. It's unfortunate, but it's more the archaeologists that get upset than the Buddhists. The Buddhists know that's a symbol for the Buddha. That's not the Buddha. They didn't blow up the Buddha. You can't blow up the Buddha. That was a symbol for the Buddha that they blew up, and I'm sorry they did it. But the Tripitaka case, all the, all the scriptures that we've got in the monastery, if they all burnt down or the worms ate them or somebody stole them, that would not be the end of the Dhamma. That's a symbol for the Dhamma. The monks and novices in this monastery, this is a symbol for the Sangha. The, the symbol there, like a mirror, would be there that we look in. If you need to look in a mirror, it's there, it gives us a reflection. And so likewise, the symbols that we have for the refuges are there that re- reflect back to us a potential, something that the Buddha discovered, recognized, found out as an unshakable source of security, that this is wise, this is skillful, this is intelligent, this is worth investing in. These dimensions, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, these dimensions of reality are something worth orienting your life towards. So cultivating the refuge is something that we do. It's not something that we just believe in. Beliefs are to do with concepts, whereas having faith or confidence in the refuges is it's more of a heart quality. It's it's nuanced. It's not so solid. It's not something that we can get in the same way as perhaps we can with some of our ideas and and beliefs. So the. Uh, this, this place here also is a symbol. This is not the refuge, but it symbolizes the possibility for human beings. You come here and, and you see people cultivating something 
we maybe use the word sacred or spiritual, uh, it's something inner, it's something different from a lot of what we normally invest our energy in. It's understandable, particularly householders investing their time and energy into making money and financial and material and physical security and all of that is understandable, but the spiritual dimension is something different. And so places like this symbolize that something different. The, The place, the people, the teachings, they're here and offered freely, which is important, for anybody to engage as a way of nourishing, encouraging that inner dimension that the Buddha recognized as can be, potentially give us security. However, if somebody comes here and, I don't know, some rich business people buy this place and flatten it and turn it into a helicopter pad for marketing, military equipment or something rather, that doesn't destroy, (laughs) that doesn't, well, it's not going to happen, but that doesn't destroy the refuges, it just destroys this place. And so the place is not the refuge, but the place definitely symbolizes something and reminds us of something, and as such, it's uh, precious, it's valuable. And I was... um, Reminded recently, so I was staying with some some friends in London, some good friends I've known for many years, and they bought a new property, and and they at the back of the house they're fortunate to have this nice uh, space where they can cultivate a garden, and it was a real delight to spend time with these friends, looking at the possibilities, and and then it occurred, it perhaps was quite obvious. Uh, metaphor for spiritual life, but again the the cultivation of a garden and 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 how similar it is in many ways to the cultivation of the the refuges, the cultivation of our practice, the the cultivation of of the inner life, and and the kind of effort that is required, the kind of effort that's required for cultivating a garden, and the kind of effort that's required for cultivating the refuges during our practice investing in the inner life, there are many uh, similarities. And and you could, for instance, if you had a lot of money and um, a lot of heavy machinery and you could create an instant garden, you know, you could like do a Chelsea garden, you know, within a a week or two you could create this exquisite thing and take a huge amount of energy and... But you know, maybe there's something a little synthetic about that. There's another way of approaching gardening, which is seeing it as an experiment, seeing it as an adventure, seeing it as a discovery. And those of you that do do gardening know that there can be a tremendous joy in, in learning as you go along. Yes, we can learn from others, but also we can be a bit daring. And, and similarly with the spiritual life, it's not difficult if you're heedless, to get intimidated by the experts, expert gardeners. I remember when this is like, I don't know, 30-something years ago. When was I here? 35 years ago? I don't know. When we first started this place, one of the things I found out was all these expert gardeners around who were wanting to tell us this is the only way to do it. 
And I can remember Ajahn Sumato warning me, you know, about some of these experts. We, we had one particular Austrian chappie who was very vociferous in, in ordering us around and, and telling us what we had to do with this tree and that tree. And, and then there was one of the nuns who was also particularly confident and keen on giving advice and, and the, the Austrian chappie and the nun didn't always agree and that was sometimes a bit interesting and, and it wasn't always harmonious. And, and, but the problem was being, invest, being invested and intimidated by the experts. These, all these people thought they were experts. It's like, I don't know, people who are into Mac computers and other ones into PC, you know, the, the Mac people, they, they got a particular kind of aura about them. They really think that they, you know, you've got to be into Mac or you're nobody. And, and then there's the PC people who, you, you know, they're into Android and they, they look at the Mac people and feel sorry for them. And they, both sides think they've got the answers. And it's similar, in the, and it's wise of us to be cautious in our commitment to cultivating the refuges that these spiritual experts don't dissociate us from our inner conviction that there is a real reality worth seeking. You know, like when the Buddha stepped out on his path, when he old age, sickness and death, at the age of 29, he got disillusioned, disheartened and perhaps vaguely depressed by what he saw and what he realised by that stage of life. And this upsurge, this interest, this enthusiasm came to him that he, he want, I'm going to find out, I'm going to find out what is the truth, is there a truth, is there a real reality that can be realised by human beings? And, and thankfully in that lifetime he did realise it and, and gave the teachings. But similarly for us, we suffer, we get disoriented, we get confused, we get disheartened by life and then there's this quickening of the recognition of the possibility of the way. And so we don't want to lose touch with that. I think that's perhaps something I want to say tonight that, that all of us are vulnerable to being intimidated by the experts, including the spiritual experts, that you can read books, some of these books are so well written and and so well, so expertly edited and, and produced with such gorgeous graphic design that it can make you feel like a nobody. You know, you read all about the jhanas and, and the bliss and, and the insights and the profundity and all the rest of it, and you think, oh, little old me, kind of plodding along, not getting very far after all these years and all these retreats and all the pain I've put up with and so on, and I'm, I'm nobody compared to him. Well, I, I can tell you I've met a lot of these people who write these books, and they're not all that amazing. You know, the editors might be very skilled, and the graphic designers might be very skilled, but the risk of being intimidated by the way things appear to be is something that we're all vulnerable to so long as we're unawakened. We can all be intimidated by the appearance of expertise. And so whether it's gardening or, uh, or any other skill that we might be developing, including particularly the cultivation of the refuges and our practice, to be cautious about losing touch with that original inspiration, to be cautious about that, to value that. Maybe, I don't know, maybe make some notes about it or develop some symbolic reminder of what it was that brought us to this 
the sense of the relevance of seeking the way, something that stays helps keep us connected with that so that we don't get overly intimidated. We can be impressed, that's all right. We can respect, of course, that's suitable. And we can learn from others, as with gardening. I mean, you, can, you don't have to make all your own mistakes. You can, you know, you can, for instance, you can deplete the soil if you've got a nice veggie patch and you, you know, every year you grow corn and cabbages, corn and cabbages, corn and cabbages, until the corn's looking pretty pathetic and the cabbages are just not worth picking anymore. And, you know, the soil's become depleted, but you keep doing it, corn and cabbages, corn and whatever. And you think, well, what happens if you plant potatoes for one year? And maybe you discover that all those little nitrogen-producing bacteria on the legumes start re-nourishing the soil, and the next year you grow a crop, and, wow, it's alive again. You say, well, actually, you could have just read a book and found out about rotating crops. You didn't have to spend 10 years of having pathetic corn cobs. You could have. There is a benefit from studying. There's a huge benefit from studying. I mean, sometimes people who get into the practice tradition of, of spiritual life maybe hold to the idea that you know study is just for beginners, and I'm going to do the real practice. And Ajahn Chah's explanation of that, he said, it's like, would you allow a doctor to operate you on you if you hadn't studied his books? I mean, you wouldn't do it. But then we also wouldn't allow a doctor to operate on us if all he'd done was study books, or she'd done was study books. There's both. In other words, we can learn from others' experience. Thank goodness we have the teachings of the Buddha and the great teachers who realize for themselves. We can study it, but that's not necessarily what's the whole thing of cultivation. Study is part of cultivation, but cultivation also means getting your hands dirty. These friends that I was staying with in London, they, they have a particular, uh, well he does, has a particular fascination for posh books. He's got shelves of posh books. He used to work at Waterstones and so he got them cheap. And, and he would indulge in, in endlessly acquiring posh books on gardens. And you can look through all these books and just get wowed page after page of these beautiful beautiful photos but that doesn't mean to say you know anything about dealing with the slugs when they come and eat your hostas you know when the slugs come and eat your hostas what do you do about it you can get upset well that doesn't help your hostas look really ratty where do you want to put nasty chemicals on well maybe you could plant some marigolds or do you know discover something there's got to be an answer but first you've got to be willing to experiment and try. Just because you read books doesn't mean to say it's going to work. I mean, hostas always look good in books, don't they? But the reality can be quite disappointing, unless you're into killing slugs, which we're not. So you can have all the posh books that there are available at Waterstones, but that doesn't mean to say you know anything about gardening. And similarly, you can have all the copies of the translations of the Tripitaka. You may even be able to recite them in Pali and English and whatever other language, but it doesn't mean to say that you know the refuge, that you have a source of inner security that when your life is falling apart and you feel the ground has been ripped from underneath you, that you still 
feel uh, there is a direction you can turn that gives you strength, gives you stability. So that's, that's what we're talking about, cultivating the refuges. The information is relevant, but that's just giving us the direction. Then we've got to get our hands dirty and get on with it. So the, um, this word cultivation, I, I can remember when as a very young monk I, I came across this word bhavana, particularly jitta bhavana, you know, cultivation of the heart, and immediately it fascinated me, this particular word, and whether it's because of its botanical associations with cultivation of the soil, or I think it's perhaps quite likely that it was because it, culti- it, it contradicted very distinctly a view that I had been conditioned with in my early life, which is, this is the way you are. You're like this. God created you like this, and that's it. You know, this is your lot. Be grateful for it. And when I came across the Buddha's teaching on cultivation, that there's always something you can do about it, always. So long as we're conscious, there's always we, something we can do about our condition. We can always make an effort. We can always make an effort, and when we make an effort, we make a difference. If we make the right effort, which is what cultivation is about, it's like learning how to make the right effort. If we make the right effort, then we make progress on the path. We learn. We, we orient ourselves more strongly, more directly towards liberation. And so I found that concept particularly uplifting and particularly inspiring, jitta pavana or cultivation of the heart. And it is often a matter of uh, giving ourselves permission to experiment. As I was saying earlier, if we're not careful, we can be overly intimidated by the experts and lose connection with our own inner (coughs) organic interest in discovering what it is, where it is, I'm doing this thing that creates suffering. The interest we have in the beginning, if we get overly intimidated, we can lose connection with that. We can start blaming the monastery we live in or the the teachers or the other monks or the weather or my astrological configuration or my genetic inheritance or whatever else we might feel we can blame. But we, what hap- the consequence of that is we lose the connection. Interest matters. You know, being really interested in finding the solution is there for us in the beginning and to stay connected with that. And, and if we forget that, you know, if we fall prey to the conditioned view of there's nothing you can do about it. You're just like this. This is just the way you are. You know, you're born under this astrological sign or whatever. That's a great pity because that, well, it certainly contradicts the Buddha's teaching, which is there's always something we can do about it. There's always an effort we can make. Just remembering, just, just remembering our aspiration for the path is doing something about it. And the benefit, the benefits that come from that grow the more we experiment. Yes, saying learning from others' experiments, reading, listening, befriending, consulting, spending time with others who've travelled the 
path further than we have can certainly contribute. And then getting it wrong ourselves when we get it wrong. And this is, um, again, uh, one of the benefits of getting a little older. Uh, Ajahn Kruniko and I were, were commiserating is not the right word. Uh, we were sharing this morning the benefits of being over 60. And, um, and, and the, 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 one of the things that you learn, and it happens also to be one of the benefits of being an abbot, which he now is, that uh, if you don't have patience, you're really going to suffer. That patience, young people don't have patience. It's understandable. You know, there's so much energy, so much enthusiasm, so much potential, so much opportunity in the mind of a young person. It's understandable, and that's what young people do. They come up with new suggestions for doing things in different ways, and that's, that can be a valid and valuable contribution. But there's a lot of things in life that <laughs> you just can't rush. You know, like an acorn doesn't become an oak tree in a hurry. You know, you know, weeds, they grow pretty fast. Nettles grow pretty fast. Thistles, docks, I mean, they grow really fast. But oak trees, you know, they, they take a long time to grow. And, and similarly with our inner life, there's a lot of, a lot of the... Barami or a lot of the, the vectors for transformation that the Buddha identified, that the Buddha perfected himself and realized and exemplified. But he took lifetimes. He took lifetimes to develop these things. It reminds me of when Ajahn Chah was visiting the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, uh, at the invitation of Jack Cornfield, and, and people were asking questions about this, questions about that. And on one occasion, he was a bit fed up with it all, and he said, look, you guys, just you come and do a retreat for a week and you think you can get enlightened? He said, I've been in a monastery since I was 13. The point was, some things you just can't rush. But if we are suffering from, as the Buddha called it, the intoxication of youth, we don't know that. You need, we need, we all need, basically people who are older than us, wiser than us, to remind us. And... And so this is, uh, again, with the path of cultivation of the refuges, of the practice, one of the benefits of sticking with it, you start to see for yourself. You say, oh, right, patience matters. It really does matter. And it's all right to get things wrong. Not too wrong, and that's why we have the precepts. the, The precepts stop us from getting things too wrong. If we've got the precepts and we're serious about our commitment to the precepts, then we can feel safe. Uh, similarly, with, with experimenting with gardening, you know, some things like light and you, know, you put them in the wrong place, of course they're not going to grow. Well, you learn. If you manage to catch them before they die, you can move them out and put them somewhere else. And, and getting things wrong, like in meditation, you know, all of us have probably learnt from trying too hard. Trying too hard is, you know, we think that's that's virtuous. That's what we're told when we're young. You know, you've got to strive. And one of the last things the Buddha said before he died was strive for liberation with diligence. And so we can think striving is it. Well, striving is sort of it. There is a time for striving. It's like... There's a, stri- there's, a, there's a time for being assertive in our effort. 
in practice. There are certain things which you need to look into in the mind and dig out and remove. But there's other things that that energy doesn't work for. You know, sometimes in cultivation we need to be extraordinarily gentle and patient, even tender. You know, like, you know, some of you have been here for the, the forest week or the forest month, out in the forest and some of the work you do is, you know, pretty rough and maybe you, know, you even need to use a chainsaw. Do you use chainsaws here? Somebody's got a license for using chainsaw and hopefully they've got all the safety equipment and, and so you use a chainsaw and then, well, even that doesn't do it. You've got a rotten old elm tree that has been cut down but then you've got the roots and so you've got to get the tractor out and some chains and it's real hard work and, yeah, it's assertive. But if you've been planting seeds in a seed tray and you're transferring them into pots... It's not the same effort, is it? It's a very different sort of effort. You know, it's got to be very, very gentle as you take these little little seedlings and put them into pots and then, and then protect them. Or then if you're planting them out, how do you actually plant those little tender saplings out into the soil? And We've had several planting sessions in our monastery over the last few years, planting a little forest down by the lake and... And I remember there was one year that the uh, it, we, it was somebody had the inspiring idea to invite all the the Thai students from the local Newcastle University, and these city kids turned up, and they didn't have a clue. You know, I went around afterwards, and they'd taken some of these saplings, and they there was a hole, and they just put it in the hole, and then walked away. And they didn't they didn't even put soil in the hole and firm it in. And let alone actually stop to see where the prevailing wind came from and then estimate where to put the stake and then know how to put the tag around it so that as the tree grows, it's not going to eat into the bark and, and to tenderly, sensitively care for the sapling. They didn't have a clue. And Well, so it is for a lot of us with our spiritual life in the beginning. We don't have a clue. We go in there like a bat out of hell, just hammering away at our meditation object, trying to crack the jhanas or get rid of our defilements or whatever, then when sometimes what's called for is a lot of, a lot of gentleness and patience and, and sensitivity. And that's also one of the, one of the uh, advantages of, of getting a little older that uh, we find out from our mistakes, we find out what doesn't work and, and we slow down, and and you can learn from experience. I mean, when some years ago we had the Venerable Ananda Maitreya come to stay with us. Were you here when he was here? He was in his nineties, I think, at that stage. A very, I mean, seriously, he was. You could call him venerable. You shouldn't call us venerable, really. It's a, we're far too young. He was truly venerable, and he would say that if you want to look for progress in your practice don't look back in anything less than f- five years. And that is one of the benefits of, of sticking with it, of the maturity that comes with a commitment to cultivating the refuges. When there's commitment, then 
then that interest that we had at the beginning can mature. It can support the cultivation of the refuges. It can support the deepening of our practice. Again, just the same as gardening, you know, it does require commitment. If there isn't commitment, you know, the weeds take over or there's not enough water or uh, neglect leads to deterioration. Similarly with our spiritual life. Even though we might start off with determination to keep the precepts impeccably, regularly, to sit with commitment regularly, if we don't hold that commitment, then the energy fades away and we lose our enthusiasm and we end up feeling uh, disappointed and disillusioned. But it's not the practice that was at fault, it was not the refuge that was at fault, it was the lack of investment of energy, lack of commitment. So it takes time. Again, as I was uh, speaking this morning with the community, that uh, taking up this practice, going for refuge, coming to stay in places like this, or those who, like the new people coming to train in a community like this, we have to expect it to take years before we acclimatize or we adjust to the culture. It's like a new culture, or it's like learning a language. Those who've learnt a, uh, another language beside English, you know, in the beginning you can pick up a few hints of the, the new language, and, but you can't communicate. You can't communicate. I can, I can remember after I lived in Thailand for, I think it was about my fourth year, I was uh, living at that time in, in northern Thailand, um, a place called near Chiang Rai, Ampapan, and Ajahn Tiridamo, my good friend, who some of you will know used to be the abbot in Switzerland, he uh, he was living at Wapapong that year, and it was a year when Ajahn Shah had t- taken in a big uh, lot of students from Bangkok, and he didn't often do that, but he did it that year, and he was giving his talks in the local, the language of central Thailand. He, often he would give his teachings in the dialect of the northeast of Thailand, uh, Isan it's called, and... Uh, and I really couldn't make head and tail of much of what he was saying when he was speaking in that dialect. But this year, Ajahn Turidama was sending me tapes of these recordings, and I got it. It took four years before I was sufficiently familiar and could relax enough to be able to communicate in the language. And so it is with our hearts. that Ajahn Chah was referring to in that uh, quote earlier, that the heart is the true refuge. The outer symbols that we have for the refuge, the outer reminders, the textbooks, the images, the traditions, uh, these things are here to inspire and encourage us, but what they're pointing towards is the heart itself. And of course this is not the tumultuous, emotional, confused heart, but the heart that has realised understanding. And, And so the the effort that we make, even when it feels like it's not producing the results that we're looking for. Maybe I want to think of 
these qualities that the Buddha pointed to, that the great teachers encouraged us towards. Not just the, the chainsaw and the tractor and the chains and the assertiveness, but also the soft powers. You know, the soft powers are profoundly important. Yeah. If all we've got is the soft powers, if all we've got is patience and tolerance and kindness and gentleness, well, when it comes to being decisive and assertive, maybe you know, we'll find we're lacking. But um, perhaps you know, we need to think of it as, as, a, as a balance between these, these different aspects of practice. Yes, there's a time for being assertive, but maybe, at least for some of us, we find it more difficult to cultivate the soft powers like patience. Like beginning again, the willingness to begin again is an essential, an absolutely essential aspect of jitta bhavana, cultivating the refuge, cultivating the practice, the willingness to begin again, to get it wrong and to be interested in learning from it, beginning again. And to, to be able to ask for forgiveness and to apologize that... Uh, you know, all of us make mistakes. We offend ourselves, we betray ourselves, we offend each other, we betray each other. But the ability to ask for forgiveness and to offer forgiveness is a powerful force for transformation, not something that we're necessarily going to think of immediately when we're considering jitta bhavana. And faith. Again, to quote Ajahn Chah, one of the teachings he gave that that uh, stays with me all these years and I'm most grateful for, and in Thai it says, Teng ti sot kumi oton, Teng ti sot kumi oton, In the end, all there is is patience. That even when you've had some great insights, you know, can we live out of those insights? Can we integrate those insights? Can we ground those insights in our daily life practice? Uh, even if we've read all the scriptures and we know how to make a, a very intelligent argument or, or give a, a very competent uh, discourse on the teachings, uh, you know, are we able to really realize those teachings in our daily life? When somebody accuses us unfairly or we're treated unjustly, can we take it and feel the rage, the indignation, the hurt, the pain? Or do we have to send that energy out and pour the toxins of our ignorant, confused mind out onto the world? Well, if we've really developed the practice, if we've cultivated the refuges, then we do have that ability. Yes, we can still feel hurt, we can still feel offended, but there's something else there. There's a holding power, there's an ability this is again why it's so important to to remember we're doing our own practice we're not doing somebody else's practice somebody else might have confidence and they may be an expert but they can't do it for us even the Buddha himself said I can but point the way it's not a belief system it's the Buddha realized something and pointed towards it and said this is the direction to go in and so my uh, confidence and um Gladness is that places like this and people like this who live here do exist 
And my wish is that all of you that have the opportunity, the good fortune to spend time here, to live here, uh, to visit here, will continue to deepen and grow in your faith in this way. Thank you very much, Evening, for your attention. Thank you.